Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, our text this morning is going to be uh, really the entire chapter, verses 1 through 24. Uh, You may remember that last Sunday uh, we began a new sermon series, a a topical series, which is a bit unusual for us, but a, a topical series looking at the doctrine of salvation. We heard the the Philippian jailer uh, say to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And in response to that question, we are exploring this idea of salvation. What is it? Why do we need it? And how do we get it? And we saw last Sunday in the first sermon of this series that we need salvation because of sin. Most of us feel our need for a Savior when we experience the miseries of sin, when we experience the the brokenness of life in this present evil age, when we experience cancer or failed marriages or broken families, when we experience unfulfilling or frustrating work, or when we have to deal with mean or just evil people, or when we deal with the unjust and corrupt systems that are so common in this age. And all of this, all of these miseries point us to the even greater misery of life in the age to come separated from God. If this is what life is like here and now, what must it be like in eternity, separated from God completely forever? But all of these miseries, even as real and great as they are, they are merely symptoms or or the fruit of our root problem. And that root is sin, the the guilt and power of sin, which which make us liable to these miseries and, and unable to escape them on our own. And so in the final analysis, our our fundamental foundational problem is sin. Because of sin, we are, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, separated from God and without hope in this world. And this morning, I'm going to take up the question of whether or not God has left us to perish in this hopeless condition. Paul says we are without hope, but, but we're without hope in ourselves. Our catechism puts the question this way, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? And of course, the answer is no. On the contrary, our God chose to save for himself a people from among those who were rightfully his enemies, from among those who were justly condemned, among those who were rightly subject to his holy wrath. God did not leave them to perish in the the misery of, of that sin, but rather he chose to redeem for himself a people. He promised salvation. And it is that promise which is going to be our focus this morning. We hear it here first in Genesis chapter 3. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let us pray and ask God for his blessing upon the ministry of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we come to your word humbly yet eagerly expecting that you will feed us, that you will nurture us, and that you will sanctify us through the ministry of your word here this morning. Father, as your word is read and as your word is preached, we pray that you would fill it with power, 
and that you would cause it to bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the very word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that, it was, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, called, but the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the reading of God's words. Kids, you can come forward to meet me at the front. I got a question for you, and I need you to be honest, okay? How many of you have ever done something that your parents told you not to do? 
that ever happen? You ever do something your parents told you not to do? Don't want to admit it in front of everybody? Is that, is that it? You've never done anything your parents told you not to do. Never? Well, just in your own minds, imagine that maybe you had once done something that uh, your parents told you not to. How many of you have ever felt like hiding after you did something your parents told you not to do? You, you maybe wanted to, to go to your room or you wanted to go into the backyard and, and you wanted to hide because you didn't want your parents to find you. I, I remember a time like that. When I, when I was about your age, I occasionally did things my parents not, told me not to do. And, and, and one time I remember was that it was raining outside, kind of like it is today, and my brother and I were kind of bored, and so we decided we were going to play football in the living room. And this was something my mom had told us repeatedly not to do, because there were lots of breakable things in the living room. And do you know what happened when we were playing football in the living room? We broke one of those things. We, we broke one of my mom's favorite lamps, and as soon as it hit the ground and as soon as it went crashing, we knew we were in trouble. And so we tried to clean it up as best we could, and we kind of like shoved it all behind the, nights, behind the, the table there by the, by the table, hoping my mom wouldn't find it. And then we went to our rooms, and we hid. Now, what do you think happened when we were hiding in our rooms? What do you think happened? You don't know? Do, do you think maybe my mom and dad came and found us? Do you think they knew? They did. They knew where we were, they, and they came looking for us. Now, why would they come looking for us? Well, because we had broken a lamp, right? And, and we had to deal with that. But it wasn't just that we were going to be in trouble for breaking the lamp. Do you know why else my parents came looking for me? They, we were playing football in the living room, I know. And we had broken a lamp, and so they, so they came looking for us. But they, they came looking for us because they loved us. And, and they weren't, they weren't going to just ignore the fact that the lamp wasn't going to be broken, but they weren't going to kick us out of the family either. And we see something kind of like that in the story that I read this morning from Genesis chapter 3. You know, Adam and Eve had done what God told them not to do. Do you remember what they did? What, what did Adam and Eve do? What was their sin? What did they do? Yeah, they ate from the tree that God told them not to. That's exactly right. And then what did they do? They hid. They tried to hide themselves amongst the trees of the garden so that God couldn't find them. And what do you think God did? He went looking for them, right? He found them there hiding behind the tree. And, and why did he do that? Well, because he couldn't just ignore the fact that they had sinned, but also because he loved them. And he was going to bring them back, and he was going to reconcile them. He was going to, to reestablish the relationship with them that they had broken by sinning against him. God's love for them was such that even when they had sinned, and even when they were hiding, he went after them. He loved them. And that's the thing I want you to remember this morning. There are going to be times when you do what your parents tell you not to do, and there are going to be times when you do what God has told you not to do. Yes? Is there that? Sometimes you do what you're not supposed to do. I, I, I can imagine that. It's probably true. But when you do that, what I want you to remember is that even in your sin, God loves you. He, he can't just ignore it, but he sent Jesus to take the punishment so that you can be forgiven. And so when you sin, you don't need to hide. You don't need to hide from your parents, and you don't need to hide from God. You just need to go to them and tell them what you have done and know that they will love you and that they will forgive you and that they 
will continue to, to care for you all of your days because God loves you and your parents love you. And because they love you and because they make a way for you to be forgiven, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. You guys can go back to your seats. All right, if you haven't already done so, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 3, this, this familiar story. And obviously there's a lot going on in this, this chapter. We're not going to be able to uh, look at all of it this morning. But, but our focus is going to be uh, on that promise. Here, as I said, we, we see the, the fall into sin, and we see the, the devastating consequences of, the, of that fall. And I, I want us to briefly consider those, but, but I really want us to spend most of our time uh, meditating upon God's promise, the, the, the promise that he makes immediately after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But before we get to the promise, let's, let's first uh, see the context by, by looking at the fall first. And really to understand the fall, we have to actually go back into chapter 2 because it was there that the, the test was set. Remember back in verse 16 of, of chapter 2, we were told about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil, And we were told that, uh, that God had commanded them not to eat of this tree. This is the, the test, the test that was given to our first parents. And it was a test because it was a, it was a test to see whether they would obey God. Would they do what God said? God had, had, had given them all the other trees from which they could eat, uh, and, and he had forbidden them to eat only of this one tree. So it doesn't seem like a very hard test, and yet it is, a, it is a real test because it is a test of saying, will they submit their will to God? Will they say to God, not my will, but yours be done? Will they acknowledge him to be God? Will they acknowledge him to be the rightful Lord? But, but more than just obedience, this test is, is really about trust. Will they trust God? Will they, will they trust that God is for them? Will they trust that, that, that God's definition of good really is good? really is for their good, really is their best? Will they willingly entrust themselves to God and submit themselves to his word? That is the test. That's what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. And it is that test that becomes the occasion for temptation when we get to chapter 3. We're told there serpent in the garden. This serpent was crafty, more crafty than any of God's other creatures. And so here we have uh, this, this serpent with Adam and Eve. He, he says first to the woman there in verse 2, uh, what um, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? He immediately begins to, to challenge uh, what God said. He, he, he challenges, did, did your parents really say that? That's ridiculous. Who, who, who could give such a, a requirement? He, he, he immediately begins to, to challenge the, the idea of God's goodness. And then he moves on to, to challenge God's trustworthiness by contradicting exactly what God said. You will not die. This will not bring death to you, but rather this will be a blessing. You will actually become like God. You won't need God to be God anymore because you will be your own God. You can sit upon the throne of your own life. 
You can, can choose your own direction. You can set your own agenda. This is the serpent's challenge, and really it is the fundamental challenge of all temptation and of all sin. Will you submit to God? Will you trust him enough to do what he says? Will you, will you trust that his word really is for your good? Or will you do what is right in your own eyes? That's the, the challenge that the, the serpent is, is placing before Adam and Eve. And there in verse 6, we, we read about the fall. We read that ultimately they do not trust God. They do not submit themselves to His word, but rather they, they follow the leading of their own judgment. When the woman saw that the tree was good and desirable, good for food, desirable for gaining wisdom, and, and simply pleasing to the eyes, she took the fruit and she ate it and she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate also. And in this act of rebellion, sin and death enter the world. We, we see that immediately. We, we see the, the consequences of their rebellion. We, we see the sin and the misery, as we called them last Sunday, which immediately come into the world. First, notice the, the misery that we see here. We see man's lost relationship with himself. Man is, is, is no longer at, at peace with himself, but, but rather he is now ashamed, ashamed such that he needs to, he needs to cover himself with, with fig leaves and he needs to hide himself in the trees. And so here is, is shame entering into the world. Now this is sometimes hard for modern readers to make sense of because the default assumption in our culture is that all shame is false shame. If you are ashamed, what you need to do is you need to realize that you really are good enough, that you really are enough, that, that, you, that you are all that you need to be, and you just need to love yourself. This is the way the, the world deals with shame, and, and the reality is it doesn't work. Why does it not work? It, it doesn't work because shamelessness is not a virtue, but shamelessness is, is actually a problem. Someone who cannot feel shame is not in a better position to live well, but is actually cut off from living well because our shame is real. We are rightly ashamed. Adam and Eve were rightly ashamed. They had rebelled against God. They had done that which, which they ought not to do. They had done that which had brought sin and death into God's good creation. They were rightly ashamed because what they had done was shameful. And it is the same when we feel shame today. We are sinners, and our sins have real consequences. Our, our sin does damage to our community. It does damage to our, our neighbors. Our, our sins are, are not insignificant. But they are, they are treason against the king, and they are vandalization of his shalom. Those sins matter, and we are rightly ashamed to be the kind of people who would do such a thing. We feel this shame, and we, we want to, to get better. It's why self-help and, and self-development books are so popular. It's why there are so many out there. It's why you can, you can go and find a thousand YouTube videos about how to live a better life today. Because we know that we are not what we are supposed to be. But the truth is that all of our efforts are not enough. We cannot escape the reality of our shame. This is the first misery of sin. And it's, it's closely related to the, the second misery. 
Because having become ashamed of ourselves, we, we have now lost our relationship with God. We see that in, in this desire to cover themselves and to, and to hide themselves before they, they walked with God. That's what's implied by, by God showing up in the garden in the cool of the day. This, it, is, it is presented as his regular pattern. This is what God did. He, he walked with man. It was a picture of, of communion, an intimate relationship, that relationship for which man had been created. But now, but now because of sin, now because of their rebellion, they must hide themselves from God. And as we keep reading, we, we see all of the miseries that, that, that flow from this lost relationship with self and lost relationship with God. Uh, the first thing we see is their, their lost relationship with one another. Notice that when God does confront them, what do they do? They are no longer partners and allies. They, they no longer stand together, but they now face off in combat with one another. It wasn't my fault, it was her fault. It wasn't my fault. And the, the, the blame shifting begins. And of course, as we hear God's curse upon creation, we, we realize that man's vocation, his relationship with creation itself as, as, its, uh, as its vice regent has been spoiled as well. Thorns and thistles will now plague and frustrate his, his work of dominion. And that work of multiplying will be filled with all manner of pain. This is the misery of sin. But of course, we see more than just the misery of sin here. We see also the guilt of sin. The reason sin brings misery is because sin is an affront against a holy God. Sin is wrongdoing. Sin makes us guilty. And God's curse is a legal sentence against the guilty. It is a, it is a pronouncement of a judge. And it tells us that man, in, in his sin, is now justly condemned. And so man's problem, as we saw last Sunday, is twofold. Yes, it is the miseries that first draw our attention to the fact that we need a Savior. But those miseries are the fruit of our root problem, which is the guilt of sin. And all that is what we saw last Sunday. It's because of, of sin and its miseries that we need a Savior. But the question still lingers out there. What will God do? We cannot save ourselves. We are at his mercy. How will he respond? And we see the mercy of his response immediately. Look again at, at God's curse. Look first at the, the curse that's pronounced against the woman. Because, because here we, we see even the first hints of, of God's Mercy. What does he say there in verse 16? He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be, the ESV says, contrary to your husband, but, you shall rule, but he shall rule over you. Maybe a better translation would be, your desire shall be for your husband. The, the idea here is that uh, the, the relationship that God had established between the man and the woman as husband and wife, that, that relationship of head and helper has now been broken. Man and woman will no longer submit to God's word as it has been given, but they will seek to claim for themselves roles uh, that were assigned to the other. We, we again, we, we hate this in our modern culture. The modern culture hates this idea that, that God created men and women differently and that he has assigned them different roles to play. But it is actually part of God's good design. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we have to fall into 1950s stereotypes. That's, that's not what this text is saying. But it is saying that God has created mankind as male and female, and he has given them roles to play, and they will no longer want to fulfill those roles. They will no longer want to, to be who God created them to be, but their desire will be to be who they want to be, to define themselves and to decide their own values and their own agenda and their own purpose. So there's going to be conflict. And this, this relationship that was, that was created to, uh, to be the, the, the partnership by which man would fulfill his calling has now become a source of, of pain. And childbearing also will be painful, we're told. I will multiply your pain in childbearing, God says. In pain you shall bring forth children. And so there is real curse here. There is, there is real consequence for sin and rebellion. But notice, even in the midst of that judgment, there will still be children. And there will still be marriage. They are now tainted by sin. They are now polluted. They are now corrupted but they will still be, and that is God's grace. God's, God's design for creation has not been entirely undone. Yes, there will be pain. Yes, there will be tension and, and frustration, but there will be children, and there will be marriage. And we see the same thing in God's curse of the man. Again, notice what he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of, the, uh, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now literal thorns and thistles are, are all too real. If you've ever tried to, to garden or even just keep a yard, you, you know. We pay people to come and spray the weeds in our yard, and yet they still can't do it. They're professionals, and they can't stop the weeds from coming. What hope do we, the rest of us have? I just give up. But, but nevertheless, thorns and thistles are all too real. But of course, it's not just the, the literal thorns and thistles that grow in our yards or in our gardens. Every work that, that man undertakes is now plagued by thorns and thistles. Whatever your job is, whatever your vocation, whatever it is you do to, uh, to put food on the table and to keep a roof over your head, you know that there are thorns and thistles. Sometimes uh, you know, 20-year-olds are, are, are trying to decide about their career and they're trying to decide, well, what's the thing that, that I'm going to find ultimate joy in doing? And there's something right about considering your passions and your, and your gifts when you are considering your career. But there is something delusional about thinking that you are going to find a job that's going to bring you ultimate satisfaction. Whatever job it is, no matter how great it is, thorns and thistles are going to fill it. You're going to be plagued by the frustrations of life in this fallen world. That is reality. That is the, the reality of the curse. And, and not only that... But the job will always be left undone. You will never fully accomplish the good that your heart desires, that you feel called to, because eventually to dust you will return. In the end, the dust will win. In the end, you will die. And good work will remain incomplete, unfinished. This is the reality of God's curse upon the man. But again, just like with the curse on the woman, there's grace here. 
Because notice, while thorns and thistles will, will plague your work, you will eat. In pain, yes, but you will eat. There will be bread. And not only will there be bread, but there will also be days and, and years and decades of life. You will not die immediately. One day to dust you will return, but it will not be today. This is the grace of God. These are, these are hints that, that God's grace is, is there. But notice that, that God is doing more than, than simply providing hope in the midst of this misery. Yes, he is. He's doing that. He's, he's telling us that the, the miseries of sin will, will not be absolute. This is a, a good and a, and a gracious thing. Life is hard. And, and those miseries are, are real, as, you, as you've heard, experienced yourself and as you've heard me say. But those miseries are not absolute. There is still good in the world. There is still beauty. There is still joy. But while the softening of those miseries in this life is a true kindness, in a sense, it doesn't ultimately help us. It is something like hospice care. When, when, when they call in hospice care, the goal is no longer to heal. The goal is simply to ease the pain until death comes. And, and if we see only God softening the miseries of, of sin, his, his grace looks like hospice care because misery is, is merely, as I've said, the fruit of our problem. The root is that sin, that guilt that separates us from God. And if, and if God softens the miseries of this life without dealing with the guilt of our sin, he is merely delaying our full condemnation. He is, he is merely giving hospice care, not real hope. But of course, God is not doing that at all. He is not giving mere hospice care. The, the good news is that God has given us much more than a mere delay in judgment. The good news is that He is promising here a full reversal of the curse. He is, he is promising a full reversal of our fall into sin. And we see this when he deals with the serpent. Notice again what he says to uh, the serpent. He says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. When I was a kid, I used to think that this was the, the story of how the snake lost his legs. Maybe you've read it that way your, yourself. But remember, Satan or God here is not dealing merely with snakes. He is dealing with the serpent. He is dealing with Satan. This curse is against our enemy. And to eat dust in that day is, is to be utterly defeated. We, we still use that sort of language today. And so what God is doing here in the curse of the serpent is he is proclaiming, he is, he is prophesying, he is announcing ahead of time the, the, the serpent, Satan's ultimate and utter defeat. He will be defeated. His, plan, his plans will be always frustrated. His schemes will be, uh, will be frustrated and will finally fail. How so? How, how will he dust all of his days? Well, first, God will put enmity between Satan and his offspring and between the, between the offspring of the woman. 
Now again, that, that sounds strange to us, but we have to remember what's going on here. Enmity is that, that hatred or that strife that, uh, that, that makes people enemies. It is that animosity that, that puts people at odds with one another. And what had Satan done? Satan had introduced enmity between man and God. He had, he had lured man into rebelling, into being traitors against the king. He had made them into enemies of God. But here comes God, and God says that he is going to make man once again an enemy of Satan and his offspring. In other words, he's going to put the enmity back where it belongs. Satan was always an enemy. Man had been created in right relationship with, with God, and therefore God's enemies were, were man's enemies. That's where the enmity belonged. And God says, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to, I'm going to put things back the way they are supposed to be. I am going to reconcile mankind to myself. That's what this is. It's, it's, it's an implicit promise of reconciliation. And that reconciliation only comes through redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. We, we heard it in our call to worship this morning. Having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. It is that peace with God which is the fulfillment of this promise. And that, that fulfillment comes through our justification, through the announcement that we are righteous. And we are only announced righteous when the guilt of our sin is dealt with, when it is nailed to the cross. When, it is, when our debt is paid in full. And so here, in, in just a, a short phrase, in this promise to restore the enmity between Satan and between mankind, we have the seed of God's promise to bring justification and forgiveness and reconciliation to his people. But not only does he, does he promise to restore mankind to himself, not only does he, does he promise to, to forgive sins and restore relationship, but more than that, he promises to completely undo and destroy all of Satan's plans, all that Satan thought that he had accomplished by luring man into rebellion against God. This is what the, the, the bruising of the head is all about. God announces that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. Yes, the, the heel of the seed will be bruised. The Savior will suffer. And of course, we know today that that is a, a reference to Jesus' suffering, to his passion, to his, his death upon the cross for us in our place. But the promise is that, that through that bruising, he will bruise Satan's head. And that bruising of the head is, is meant to be understood as a mortal wound. It's why some modern translations render it as, as crushed. They're trying to connote, this is, this is not a mere head, head wound. I, I, I bump my head on things all the time, and I'm, I'm still here. That's not what uh, the, the God is talking about. The bruising of the serpent's head is the crushing of his head. It is his utter destruction. This is a promise to destroy the works of the devil. This is a promise to undo the, the death and the destruction that had, been entered, that had entered into God's good creation through man's rebellion. And so in the curse of the serpent, God promises a full salvation. A salvation from the guilt and the power of sin. From its, from its curse and its corruption. A salvation to be accomplished by the seed of the woman. This is the promise. 
And so God's delay is, is not mere hospice care because it's not a mere delay. The, the, the staying of the miseries of sin matters because it's in that, that delay that God makes space for this plan of redemption to unfold. That's, that's really what the whole Old Testament is about. From, from, from the beginning to the end, it is about the unfolding plan of God's redemption, which will finally reach its, com, its climax in the arrival of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. God's delay is not mere hospice care, but rather it is setting the stage when Jesus will come in the fullness of time. We, we see this so clearly in, in Romans chapter 3. It's a familiar chapter. For, and, and near the end of that chapter, in verses 21 uh, and, and following, we have this, this glorious announcement of the gospel that now the righteousness of God has been revealed. But do you remember what Paul says right at the very end of that chapter? He says that God did this. God uh, made known his righteousness in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Why? To defend his own righteousness, to demonstrate his own righteousness. Well, why would God need to, to demonstrate his own righteousness? Because, from the perspective of the world, he had appeared unrighteous. How had he appeared unrighteous? He had appeared unrighteous because he had passed over former sins. The full sentence against man's rebellion had not been paid. The righteous were flourishing. How can a just God allow mankind to, to continue? We had seen a hint of what they deserved in the story of the flood. And yet God had promised never to pour out his full wrath again until the end of history. But how can a righteous judge, how can a holy God tolerate man and allow him to continue to, to live in sin? Well, as Peter says, it was not a slowness to do what was right, but rather it was a holy patience. And now in Christ, the righteousness of God has been demonstrated. Because he came as the seed of the woman. And through his sufferings, the, the uh, serpent's head was finally crushed. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In him, we now have peace with God. In him, we now have hope of eternal life in the age to come. In Christ, all of God's promises find their yes and amen. Because this is what was promised in the garden. Immediately after, God, uh, after man had sinned, God promised a Savior. He promised that His Son would come to restore the goodness of His creation. And I, and I just want us to, to take just a few minutes to focus on the, on the wonder of what this means. First, think about what it means that 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 God immediately promised a Savior. It's like I was saying to the kids. When, you're, when your kids do something that, that you told them not to do, and when there are real consequences, you have to deal with those consequences. But you're not going to put them out on the street. Why? Because you love them. Because they are your children. And I want you to see that that is but a poor reflection of God's love for you. It's what we see here immediately, immediately upon 
man's rebellion, God makes a promise to, to undo what they have done, to put right what they had, had put wrong. And this means that, that Jesus did not come to convince the Father to forgive you. He did not come to, to convince the Father to, to give you another chance, but rather He came because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together in unity, loved the world, as John says. Immediately, without hesitation, God made a promise to redeem for himself a people. And immediately he put that plan into motion. And so while God can by no means clear the guilty, he is a God who delights to forgive, delights to show mercy, delights to be patient. And it is only in Christ that he's able to hold those two together. Because in Christ, the righteousness of God is demonstrated. In, right, in Christ, our sin is dealt with, and we are forgiven. And so when you sin, don't hide from God. Don't be like Adam and Eve hiding amongst the trees of the, of the garden, not only because it's foolish and will never work. You're, you're hiding from the maker of heaven and earth. But do not hide from him, because his love is your only hope. When you sin, flee to him, not from him. And flee to him knowing that he is able to do what he has promised. For he is the Lord God Almighty. And what he has determined to do, he will do. The good work that he has begun, he will bring to completion. You can entrust yourself to him. Because he loves you, he is for you. And he is able to save to the uttermost because he is God. His promise is sure because his words never fail. And because we have such a promise, such a promise of salvation that cannot fail, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together. Father God, we come before you now humbly asking that you would cause these truths to dwell in us richly, Father. May we see you not as a, as a father to be avoided, an angry father disappointed with his, his disobedient children. But Father, may we see you as the father who loves his children and who has made a way for them to be reconciled through their older brother. Father God, thank you for this gospel. Help us to see it, help us to believe it, help us to rest in it, and help us to live out of it to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.